So Kathy and I had our sweet little granddaughter, Evelyn, at Barnes & Noble on Friday in the children's section. We took her there after Grandparents' Day at her daycare. And prominently displayed in the children's section on a four-sided turning rack filled with dozens and dozens of books, I thought, look at all of those books. But then I looked more closely and discovered there are really not so many books. There are really only a couple of stories on that rack. The only difference comes in one word in the title of each book, and that is the child's name. So it's Liam's Polar Express, Andrew's Polar Express, Mary's Polar Express, Ben's Bedtime Story, Georgia's Bedtime Story. Well, I couldn't resist. When I got home, I had to Google what this thing was that I had just seen. And this is what I found on Barnes & Noble's website. The books are called Put Me in the Story. Personalized books starring your child. Everyone is the star of their own story. Now make your little one the star of their very own book. And I said, Lord, thank you. You knew what I was preaching on this week, and now you've provided for me the perfect illustration. My intent is not to cause the stock of Barnes & Noble to plummet because no one buys these books. And I'm not suggesting that if you have one of these books that you should go out and burn it. I'm simply saying, That these books are reflective of what our culture values and seeks to ingrain in us. It tells us that we should be the star. That we deserve to be the star. That something is amiss if we're not the star. That something should be corrected to make us the star. The center of the story. The sovereign of our own lives. And so we begin peddling this message very early. But what happens when Scripture collides with that story? And what happens when the bigger and better story of Scripture neither allows us to be the star nor to be sovereign over our own lives? Well, the easiest way to solve that conflict And the one that people are adopting in increasing rates these days is to just let Scripture go. To deny that it's the inspired Word of God. To deny that it's infallible in what it teaches. To just simply say, ah, Scripture, that's just the Word of man. I imagine each of us, if we were being honest, at least it's true of me, we've imagined a life for ourselves, free from what we feel to be the restraint of God's word, released to live as we want to live and to let others do the same. Of course, this is not new in our culture. It's the condition of the human heart that demands to be sovereign over self. John Calvin wrote this in the 16th century. The tendency is always to bury the word of God so that we may make room 
for our own falsehoods. Richard Niebuhr, that famous 20th century Christian theological ethicist, he was most famous for his book in 1951 entitled Christ and Culture. He famously wrote this uh, about this need that we have to write our own story the way we like it. As we would rather tell it, quote, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So I'll remind you and me this morning that God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. God gives us his word to preserve our lives and to protect us from ourselves. The star of scripture is the Lord Jesus Christ, his majesty, his glory, his love, his compassion, his mercy. God has blessed us with his inspired infallible word. It's not something to abandon as unbelievable, but to embrace as miraculous gift of God's grace toward us. You and I must submit our lives to all of God's word. That's what I want us to talk about as we return this morning to the letter of 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And when you found your place in 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, bless now your word to us. Spirit of God, join this word. Produce life and faith in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, this morning, as we continue in our new series that I've entitled Sure Hope, until we're home, I'm going to do something a a little bit different. Instead of looking at the specific content of these verses, I'm going to talk about what 1 Peter is. 1 Peter is a letter. 1 Peter is an epistle. 1 Peter is the inspired infallible word of God. And we need to talk about those ideas of inspiration and infallibility. And so I've asked the Lord, Lord, please do not let this be or sound like a boring lecture. Instead, Lord, enliven my words, honestly. As I point us to the life that you and I can find in the living word. See, recent statistics reveal that it's unwise of me as a pastor not to spend time talking about these important truths. This is from the Gallup poll, July 6th of 2022, just seven months ago. A record 
low, 20% of Americans now say the Bible is the literal Word of God, down from 24% the last time the question was asked in 2017, and half of what it was at its high in 1980 and 1984. Meanwhile, a new high of 29% say the Bible is a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. This marks the first time significantly more Americans have viewed the Bible as not divinely inspired than as the literal Word of God. As was the case in 2017, belief in a literal Bible is highest among those with less formal education. Americans who identify as evangelical or born again are much more likely to view the Bible as literally true. Listen to this. Although even among this group, the percentage believing in the literal Bible is well less than 50%. Fewer than 50% of born-again believers embracing the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. Of course, these are sad statistics. Because if you and I don't have the certainty of the Word of God, what do we have? So you see why this is such an important topic. The problem is that the article doesn't define literal interpretation of the Bible. Can you bear one more story? Please say yes. Thank you. Back in the fall, when I was making plans for the 50th anniversary celebration of the PCA that we hosted here in this building two weeks ago, not being sure if the ceiling above us would remain standing, should we have all those people in this building, I called another pastor and inquired whether we might be able to use their church building in the event that we were not able to use this one. And without skipping a beat, and with a voice oozing with condescension, the pastor replied, so let me get this straight. You people, yes, that's what he called us, you people who take the Bible literally want to use our building for a worship service. I have to exit the story at that point. You don't want to hear the rest of it. (laughs) I just use this story to illustrate that this is the new bludgeon that's really used against those who believe in the inspiration and infallibility that we take the Bible literally. No one likes to be beaten up. I don't like to be beaten up. It's easier to abandon, right, than to be beaten. And so... When the liberals and when the progressives challenge, you don't literally believe the word of God, do you? Well, the hope is that we begin to be shamed and to stutter and to stammer and to reach for our tattered intellectual dignity to wrap around us and say, well, no, 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 of course I don't believe. It's literally the word of God. Listen. I don't take the Bible literally either. In that, I don't believe that mountains can sing or that trees of the fields have hands that they can clap or that I was supposed to date a girl named Joy, even though Scripture says, you shall go out with joy. (laughs) 
you shall be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth with singing, and the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Listen, listen. Scripture contains poetry and prose, parables and proclamations. Poetry is not to be taken literally. Commands are. Every detail of a parable is not to be taken literally, but deep theological proclamations are. And so for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to move away from this word literal and talk instead about these four words or ideas. Inspiration, one. Being carried along, two. Plenary, number three. And infallibility, number four. And I'll repeat those as we come to them. First is inspiration. The Apostle Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred, sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. As we know it from the King James, all scripture is inspired by God. The Greek word, theo, Neustos, theo meaning God, neustos, a form of the Greek word pneuma, which is spirit. It just means that all scripture comes from the spirit of God, breathed out by God. Think with me about Genesis chapter 2. The Lord formed man out of the dust of the ground, and then scripture says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. You and I need to view Scripture in the same way. God breathed out Scripture, and so there's life in His Word as He breathed life into Adam. That's why Scriptures are called the words of life. Hebrews 4, the Word of God is living and active. If you look down a few verses in 1 Peter chapter 1, He writes, you've been born again, not of the perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. How blessed you and I would be if we could begin to view Scripture in this light as life-giving when joined by the Spirit of God instead of standing in judgment over it, fighting against it criticizing it, trying to protect our intellectual dignity from it, instead of being a little hopeful that it isn't inspired so that we can be the star of our own lives and sovereign over them, we should see the Word of God as His gift of grace, something sacred and beautiful and beyond us and life-giving. If you look in verse 1, you see that God calls us elect Elect exiles. We don't get to be anything other than that. Because that's who God has said that we are, and we're not sovereign over our own lives. God is. And Scripture offers hope to exiles while we make our way home. Through His Word and by His grace, God breathes His life into us through His Word. And so if you and I can embrace Scripture in this way, The inspiration of it really will revolutionize the way you and I look at and come to the word of the Lord. The psalmist writes, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on earth. 
Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your word. First Peter, in chapter 2, he writes, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Not literal milk. No, long for the spiritual milk of the word, because God inspired it, and it's life-giving. Getting. Secondly, inspired men who wrote the word of God, Scripture says, was carried along. This also, Peter writes, second letter, first chapter. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So listen to this. This is Peter's personal testimony. He heard the voice of God speak to him from heaven. He heard it. He knew it was the voice of the Lord. And so he knows that he is now writing the word of God. He has no doubt. And so he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretations, for no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. We were inundated with dandelions where I grew up. Every yard, every field was full of them, and not unlike most children, I would pick up those dandelions when they'd gone to seed. And I would hold them up and look at those beautiful little white seeds and blow on it and watch the wind carry those seeds up and up and further and further away. That's what I think of when I think of being carried along by the Spirit of God. Inspiration is not impersonal. It wasn't like some first century form of screen sharing where the apostles passively watched while God controlled the cursor and typed on the keyboard. Neither did these men go into some sort of a canatonic trance while somehow the Spirit of God took their arm and moved it and wrote the words and then they woke up and there it was written out on the parchment. No, being inspired and being carried along, it's very personal. God took hold of these authors. He held them. He carried them. He never left them. He worked through their personalities to write his holy word. And so God decided which man would write which truth. Truth best expressed, God believed, through that man and through his personality, through his experience, that men like that would write words like these. How poignant is it to us that the Apostle Paul, the man who healed so many, many people, the point that even a handkerchief that Paul had touched, if it touched someone else, they were healed. How poignant is it then that this man 
would remain himself physically unhealed. That that thorn would remain in his flesh, and yet he would be the one. He would be the one to write the inspired words, your grace is sufficient for me, for my life, for my experience. God knows the human experience. Scripture calls it knowing our frames and how we're made. And so he chooses to ground his word in human experience because it's written for and given to human beings. He knows how to apply that word to our experience, how to carry us along, how to bear us up with his word. I suppose in that sense we are the star because God takes his truth and applies it personally to us as he carries us along our way through this world as we make our way toward home. Is that good news? Carried along by the Lord. Thirdly, notice the inclusivity of what Paul and Peter write. Paul says, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Peter writes the same thing in the negative. No prophecy, none of it, was produced by the will of man. We call this plenary, plenary inspiration, which means complete inspiration. All of Scripture is is inspired not just certain parts of Scripture, as critics would have you to believe, not even in certain churches' confessions who say, well, Scripture contains the Word of God. You know what they're saying there? They're not saying Scripture is the Word of God. They're saying Scripture contains the Word of God. Somewhere in here is the Word of God. And then, in their arrogance, they tell us exactly which words are the Word of God and which words are not the Word of God. No. All of Scripture is inspired, which means that you and I can't pick and choose the parts that we like or the parts that are convenient or the parts that will help us best blend in with our culture in order not to be bludgeoned, but instead accepted. Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, Not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Every dot of Scripture inspired by God. Jesus argues with his enemies based on the tense of a word. Paul argues with his enemies on the base of a single letter. He said, Scripture doesn't say seed, it's seeds. One singular plural, it's all Inspired, and so we must submit our lives to all of it. The plenary inspiration of Scripture. Fourthly, and I'll mention this one very quickly, is the infallibility of Scripture. I-N-F-A-L-L-I-B-I-L-I-T-Y. Right in the middle of that word, you see the word fall. And that might help you to remember what infallibility is. It means that the Word of God cannot fall. The Word of God cannot fail. It does not have the ability to ever teach us anything that is wrong. That's infallibility. The Word of God cannot teach what is wrong. It only teaches what is right. And of course, this flows from inspiration, doesn't it? God's perfect. He can't make a mistake. He can't speak or teach what's not true. I don't need to say any more about that. That is infallibility. And so our time is running out. 
I'll simply say if the statistics are accurate, it's possible. I don't believe it. I'm a silver lining kind of guy. It's possible that more than half of you, half of you, are not convinced that the Word of God really is the Word of God. And so here are some questions to consider. What benefit are you seeking from not believing in the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture? What do you hope to gain by letting that go? Do you get to keep your standing as an intellectual by rejecting something so unbelievable? As we heard, those are less educated who believe in the infallibility of Scripture. Is there some perceived shame you're attempting to avoid? Some group with whom you want acceptance? Do you achieve some cognitive consonance within your own mind and letting go of something as difficult to believe as that God could speak through humans. Listen, God spoke the world into being. Which is more difficult to to believe that he could speak creation into being or that he could actually speak his word through human beings? I don't want to bludgeon you (laughs) if you struggle with the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture. I just hope you'll be honest with your struggle. It's a matter of faith. Just as belief in a resurrected Savior is a matter of faith. So be honest with yourself and know without Scripture you have no sure rock. You have no sure foundation. So I'll conclude with this. Jesus loved the Word of God. Jesus quoted the Word of God. Jesus defeated temptation with the Word of God. Jesus said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will or the will of any man, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus Jesus obeyed the word of God. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so how could God in the flesh submit himself to and give his life for the words and the thoughts and the ideas of man? He could not, he would not. Scripture is the inspired word of God. It's no accident that Jesus himself is called the Word of God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the written Word of God takes us to the living Word of God who is our sure hope until we're home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our sure hope, our steady anchor. We thank you for your Word. Help us to love your Word as you love it. Help us to submit our lives to it as you submitted your lives to it. It takes a work of your spirit to believe what is unbelievable. That's always true. So do that miraculous work in us, we pray, for our preservation, but mostly for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.